all. Welcome to the Ground Game Podcast. I'm your host, Bushido Squirrel. So tonight we have Renee Moya from the Alliance of Californians for Community Empowerment and the Los Angeles Tenants Union. How are you doing tonight, Renee? I'm doing very well. Thank you. So we wanted to talk a bit about Prop 10 because that's one of the biggest pushes we have coming up into November. Uh, And ACE was at the forefront of getting this on the ballot. So tell us a little bit about ACE and about ACE's efforts to get on the ballot. Sure. Uh, ACE is a bottom-up, grassroots organization-driven uh, community empowerment organization. We've been around for about 10 years, nine, 10 years at this point. Um, and we mostly organize communities of color, uh, working class communities across the entire state of California. So we have offices here in LA near USC. We have an office in San Diego, Sacramento, and Contra Costa, you know, you name it, we have offices up and down the state. And so, you know, ACE has been, you know, for a long time trying to be uh, very well connected to issues that affect these communities primarily, right? Uh, those that impact communities of color, working class communities up and down the state. And so a couple of years ago, we realized that housing was probably the most, Im- well, large scale issue that was affecting um, Californians, especially those of color, especially those of lower incomes. And so we decided to make it a priority for the next few years to jump into housing and uh, try to see if we could, you know, move the dial a bit on, the, on those issues. And so one of the priority uh, policy changes that we suddenly uh, put forward uh, or decided that we should try to tackle uh, was the repeal of the Costa-Hawkins Act. And we did that, or we're trying to do that via Proposition 10, which is a ballot initiative that will be on, you know, voted upon in November. Mm-hmm. And so uh, what was ACE's involvement with getting Prop 10 on the ballot? Sure. So ACE was one of the three original proponents, is one of the three uh, proponents, the legal proponents of the bill, alongside EDN, the Eviction Defense Network, and the AIDS Healthcare Foundation, AHF. All three organizations have been working in tandem from the very beginning to be able to get this uh, proposition on the ballot. And so we had a mix of a paid signature gathering uh, program and a grassroots driven one. Uh, ACE itself collected, you know, tens of thousands of signatures. We had coalition partners all across the state, including DSA and the LA Tenants Union, collecting a ton of signatures as well. Uh, ground game as well. Uh, collected signatures here in, in LA. Um, I mean, I do want to shout out like Power really carried Ground absolutely. Game. Power did an amazing job with that. I think we came in eight out of the yeah, top ten, which yeah. we're really stoked about. Absolutely. And, you know, I know that Power organizes not just on the west side of, of L.A., but also in places like Pacoima, you know, places in the valley. Um, and so, you know, all of these different organizations have been very central to that push from the very beginning. So it's not just a professionally driven, uh, you know, initiative. It's been very grassroots driven as well. And so ACE itself has tried to make sure that there is a grassroots component to the entire campaign. Um, and we consider that one of the more important uh, you know, roles that we play, trying to make sure that all of these different grassroots organizations, whether they are nonprofits or you know, not, you know, especially if there are groups that don't have uh, any kind of income outside of membership dues or what have you, we are trying to make sure to you know, make sure that they have the resources that they need to be able to you know, go knocking on doors and reach out to the communities that they already uh, reach out to um, about Proposition 10. And this is a really interesting coalition. Now, AIDS Healthcare Foundation, uh, they kind of uh, got a little bit stymied, I, I would say, by like Measure S, and it seems like they've learned some lessons. But I was hoping you could talk a little bit about how this coalition is coming together because it's so diverse because of just the size and density of California. Absolutely. So at the moment, we have over 200 organizations across California. 
um, that are a part of this coalition. A lot of the endorsers include, actually at this point, the California Democratic Party, uh, various labor unions, including SEIU, uh, ask me again, both at the state level. I believe that's my phone ringing. Yeah, Sorry no about that, folks. Um, we also have, you know, the California Teachers Association, the California Nurses Association. But alongside all of these, you know, stalwarts of uh, progressive politics or, you know, worker oriented politics in California, we have a lot of grassroots organizations. We have, for example, Asian Pacific, you know, API organizations. We have a lot of Latino and, and African-American affinity groups. We have religious organizations. Um, we're working hard right now to work to bring in LGBTQ um, organizations into the coalition. Uh, again, we have tenants' rights uh, organizations, tenants' unions. Um, and so a large part of the job that we've had from the very beginning, actually, has been reaching out to these folks. It's been very much, a, a, you know, weirdly one part, a networking um, uh, job that we've had to do to make sure that, you know, we have other organizations that we're aligned with, other organizations that we're in, in conversation with about other issues and getting them to understand that housing affects all of them. Right. And so one of the issues or one of the things that I constantly tell people um, that don't predominantly do housing issues is, look, this is an intersectional issue. You know, this affects predominantly, you know, communities of color. We're more impacted than than, you know, white uh, middle class communities for sure. There's a study recently that showed that uh, the average Latino and African-American uh, household in L.A. paid over 60 percent of their income towards housing. Clearly, it impacts all of these different groups, regardless of whether they're organizing around housing. This is something that impacts them. Uh, you know, the LGBTQI uh, community is very, very is disproportionately uh, present in the homeless population uh, of the state of California, of places like L.A., and so one of our jobs has been, again, to, to refocus these issues and say, again, housing is a problem for all of our communities. And so a large part of our job has been to, to make sure that people understand that. It, it's something that's kind of amazed me uh, over the last year is that housing is like the most radical issue for mm. millennials. I'm finding, I think, as we're getting into our 30s and 40s and being like, wow, I should own a house now or at least be able to afford my rent reliably. Uh, and you mentioned that it's an intersectional issue. I was hoping you could talk about that in terms of like how that affects other politics. Like what are the trade-offs families are making when they're trying to just afford rent? You know, I I find myself making this trade-off or, or a, a series of trade-offs basically for housing, right? It eats up more than half of my income. So I can imagine that it does the same for most people, you know? Um, and so like, you know, people are foregoing a lot of things. For, let, me, let me reframe that actually. If you're a millennial, you're likely to be uh, the holder of part of the, the over one trillion dollar debt that uh, a student debt that a lot of you know our folks, our generation, like you know, uh, suffers under, right? So you have that to take care of. You have to be able to keep a, head, a roof over your head, which is, I would argue, aside from food and drink, you know, water, the only other kind of primary thing that people care to or think to to pay, right? So they end up pushing aside a lot of different or foregoing a lot of different um, social activities. Um, they end up foregoing also a lot of important purchases, right? It's one of the things that one of the reasons why I tell people constantly, like, look, this is actually kind of good for the economy, too. You know, if we stop people from basically having their income just going off to some landlords and in particular to corporate landlords, which are an increasingly pervasive presence here in California, you know, these these, you know, titanic organizations that evict tenants at a far higher rate than even small uh, landlords do, far, far higher. We know this, this is empirical truths. And so 
you know, those folks, our money is being siphoned off to those corporations. We're not able to spend in the local community. We're not able to pay for, you know, we're foregoing things like cars, which is probably better for the environment regardless. And, uh, but, but, but regardless though, a lot of big ticket purchases that would have been, you know, uh, driving, you know, uh, demand, domestic demand, driving forward economic growth are things that we can contribute in quite the same way when we're, you know, living under, you know, or having to pay 50% of our income towards, towards uh, rent, you know? So we end up not spending in other areas of, of the economy because we're spending so much of that money towards, uh, you know, a lot of these. Yeah, the the concept of the velocity of money enters into it a lot because this corporation isn't going out and like going to the bars or spending on consumer stuff. They're throwing it at stocks. They're investing it. And we're beginning to see sort of the, the new shape of the city of L.A. arising, especially along transit lines and stuff. And this is a really an interesting one I'm hoping you could touch on because public transit is supposed to be something that opens up the city to everyone, but the transit quarters are becoming very dense with luxury housing and the kind of housing that's not very accessible. Right. And that's actually very, very important. Uh, there was an article written by Tracy Jean Rosenthal, a member of the LA Tenants Union that she wrote for the LA Times that actually touched upon this. And one of the things that she that she you know brought to the attention of the LA Times readers is, look, there's this irony you're building, you're spending billions of dollars to build these metro lines purportedly to get more more uh, Californians or more Angelinos into, uh, you know, using trains and using buses. But because of that, actually, because of a lot of the gentrification that happens around these lines, ultimately you have the kind of people moving into those housing units, the ones that have displaced the older housing and therefore the older residents, oftentimes the poorer families that live there, bringing in richer, wealthier uh, uh, folks to move into these new buildings. And what are they the kind of people who are going to be using buses? Are they the kind of people who are going to be using the trains? And so what you've seen actually is a precipitous decline in bus rider uh, uh, ridership in places uh, along these transit corridors where this gentrification is happening. I mean, ironically, you know, all of this transit-oriented development uh, because it's so poorly planned, is is eating into the 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 ridership, or what should be a natural con- constituency for for metro usage, right? And so, like you know, transit itself, the the links that it has to development is something that we I, th- I think oftentimes don't we understand it in a very superficial way and just assume that you know building and then you know building units alongside these these corridors will in and of itself solve a problem that it will in and of itself densify the city and in a way that will get people out of their cars and into uh, trains and or buses and what we're finding is that that's not necessarily true yeah it's it's amazing for for myself I live over in Culver City and we have some new transit oriented development over there and they're all clearly for people I who used are, to work in Culver City yeah, and, yeah right. the new ones uh, right mm-hmm. by the uh, the Culver City station that's a completely cashless mall like you can't spend cash in there which is a big like no poor people sort of thing. And it's it's a very weird change. Um, we're seeing the people behind those kinds of developments are coming out against this. Uh, and they've got some really weird arguments. And I know as this campaign moves forward, we're going to be like fighting against these. So I was hoping we could talk a little bit about common uh, objections we'll hear to Prop 10 and common like responses, and maybe some facts we can give people. Sure, absolutely. So one of the more common ones, probably the most common one, is this idea that rent control stops construction. You know, you have the opposition terrifying people saying, oh, rent control is going to impose a, a building freeze across California. Now, actually, empirically, we have a lot of data to show that 
rent-controlled cities, especially those that are adjacent to other cities that are not rent-controlled, oftentimes higher con have higher construction rates than those that are not. San Francisco, for example, the city of San Francisco builds it, it builds more buildings, it builds them faster than uh, a lot of the surrounding cities in the Bay Area. Los Angeles builds more than, again, a lot of the surrounding cities around, uh, you know, around us here in the county of, it itself. It's almost like it's actually the, the, under, uh, the underlying economic vitality of these cities that's actually driving construction and not necessarily, you know, policies like rent control. So on the one hand, we have that as a fact. The other fact, though, and this is bizarrely comes out of like standard economic theory and not just from from you know, the, 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 the I don't know, the, the dreamlike uh, arguments of some members of the left or what have you, if that's the purported criticism coming from the right. You have some people making, I mean, you, you have standard economic theory itself that says, look, if you actually protect tenants in, on lower incomes in older housing, what you're doing is you're stopping their displacement and therefore replacement by higher income people. What you're doing is you're stopping them, the poorer residents in the poorer housing, for, uh, housing from competing against higher income folks. What that ends up doing is it pushes the market upward so that you have higher income people now competing with each other for luxury housing. So what does that do? Obviously, if you're a developer and you see this pool of wealthy people, especially a lot of people coming into Silicon Beach, for example, in Marina del Rey, or for example, increasingly in places like Culver City where they do editing jobs or they work in, in web development or what have you, suddenly they need homes, right? And they need homes that are commensurate to their, their, their purchasing power. So they no longer go out and compete for older housing in, in say, Hollywood, you know? Yeah. And units that are 90 years old, trying to get people out of those units, I mean, not them directly, but, you know, having landlords trying to displace the tenants who are there and replace them with higher income ones, because, again, there's this huge demand of, of higher income folks coming in, right? So in and of itself, it actually creates an expanded market for higher income housing. So those are two, like, quick things that I would say against the, the construction argument. Other things that you'll hear, you'll hear things like, oh, this is going to hurt mom and pop landlords, right? Um, and I, I have right. mom and pop landlords and my building's RSO. They do just fine. They, they they're doing plenty very of well. Thank you very yeah. much. I mean, uh, the, what I, I mean, I've actually just met a, a, a landlord recently, a quote unquote mom and pop landlord, a, a smaller landlord who, you know, told me that he went on vacation for six months and he has no job. He's basically just a landlord. Uh, so this notion that he, for example, is going to face like a huge crisis as a result of this is a little interesting. But the, 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 the I guess the, the clear point I'd make about this is this. Look, the California state constitution actually guarantees a fair return on the investment of a landlord. Nothing in our proposition can change that. If tomorrow Prop 10 passes and the day after L.A. and San Francisco strengthen their rent control bills, they would still have to give some legal avenue for landlords to be able to get a fair return on their investment. Now, what does that mean? It means that if you're a landlord and you're underwater or you're like, you know, you're, you're in the red because of net operating costs, then you can you can go and apply to the rent board of your local city. You can go to Santa Monica, you can go to LA, you can go to San Francisco, and you can apply for a one-off increase beyond the rate of, of, you know, the rent stabilized rate to make sure that, again, you're not actually losing out on, on those profits. So this notion that landlords are suddenly going to, you know, all be in the red is, is bunkum. Nothing in this law allows you to do that. In, in fact, if anything, Proposition 10 writes that into it, saying, look, 
you know, you know, the, the, the you know, landlords are going to continue to have to, to, to get their fair rate of, of return, right? But that's in the Constitution. And there's a lot of case law that was start, you know, started to be laid down in the 1970s through the 80s that was negotiating with the rent control ordinances that were, you know, came down at that time. So L.A., for example, had, you know, uh, we, we had our rent stabilization, uh, stabilization ordinance passed in 1978. So you had case law arising from these new rent stabiliza stabilization laws. All of these said two things. One, rent control is legal. It's perfectly constitutional. But two, again, landlords should have the, the right to be able to, uh, you know, to, to get a fair rate of, of return. And so they do, you know. And so here in L.A., where we're currently recording this in the city of L.A., there are guidelines, very specific guidelines for when a landlord can ask for, you know, a higher than rent stabilized uh, rate. Um, there are very, very clear ones for that. Um, for example, if you're retrofitting your building for, for earthquakes, right? There are a lot of buildings that are older in places like Hollywood that we don't want to crumble during an earthquake. Under those conditions, a landlord can say, look, this building's unsafe. I'm going to retrofit the building. Now I'm going to ask uh, the tenants basically to help pay for that cost. And so you have a program to be able to do that. Now, I have seen that used in my neighborhood uh, over on the west side mm -hmm. to get an entire building out in a very, very shady way, in a way that I, I think was them trying to get around the RSO because it was new management that came in, kind of corporate. It was like, oh, your building's one of the, the dodo construction where you've got, you know, a very stupid platform design that collapses in earthquakes. Uh, but we kind of see this weaponized against renters right now because it's it's a very renter-unfriendly city. And it seems like Prop 10 would help change that tide a bit. Right, absolutely. So, I mean, one of the reasons why you get these things to begin with is because of the, the, the loopholes that these laws create, right? I mean, the Costa-Hawkins Act, which Prop 10 would repeal, is the one of the big giant ones, right? But you also have things like the Ellis Act, for example, which is also another huge loophole that allows people to pull units out of... Um, off the rental housing market and away from you know being rent controlled right or being under rent control i'll set that aside for a moment but generally the argument that i'd say about that is well twofold on the one hand the more that we empower tenants the more that we re and the more that local communities the more that cities and, and counties are able to defend tenants and and to provide these protections the more empowered a tenant you know feels uh, about their their situation vis-a-vis -vis their landlord the likelier they are to basically say hey you know call foul and say look this is not this is not legal the likelier they are to, to, to go to the housing department for example and to do that right uh, but secondly and more importantly again if we do pass a prop 10 and if we are able to force uh, local communities to to impose rent control where they're needed in places like LA and 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 stuff like San Francisco then in those places, you know, our uh, politicians are suddenly going to realize like, hey, you know what, maybe we should be strengthening other renter protections because, again, rent control in and of itself won't be enough. Uh, you know, harassment is still a problem for, for tenants. These gross violations of the Ellis Act, these gross violations of tenant habitability uh, plans, for example, which is kind of what you're talking about. Um, you need to be able to make sure that the housing department and associated regulators are actually have the tools, the legal tools they need to, to, to implement these programs, but also the budget to make sure that they can actually investigate violations of these laws. So there are a number of reasons or ways in which Prop 10 in and of itself indirectly positively impacts on that. Again, it arms tenants. It provides them with, with an ability to fight back. And so I can really understand why people like David Palmer are very afraid of this law and are, are fighting it tooth and nail. What is the opposition going to look like in terms of like money, spending, dark money? Like, what are you expecting? 
So uh, just to to you know to elaborate a little bit on that, uh, the last time I checked, I think there the opposition had raised twenty two million dollars um, against Prop Ten. That's I think ten times more than we've managed to raise from the very beginning uh, of this campaign. Um, so again, massive amounts of money coming in. The people who are who are funding this are not the mom and pop landlords that that you know Prop Ten will purportedly uh, hurt. Actually, I'm going to take a quick tangent here, talking about mom and pop landlords, and and just to uh, to to state a little bit of fact here as well that when we look at the amount of people of of quote unquote mom and pop landlords who apply for one off increases in rent or for pass throughs, that proportion is minute. I think I saw a statistic that said that in 2016 in the Santa Mon- in Santa Monica there were zero applications for a rent uh, adjustment. So it seems to me like mom and pop landlords are doing very well. Thank you very much. But again, even those folks, even the mom and pops, they're not the ones who are funding this campaign. The people who are funding it are these massive Wall Street investors. They're billionaire corporations. People like Blackstone, for example, that owns tens of thousands of, of homes across the country. They own thousands here in California. They are the biggest landlord in the state of California. You have yeah, I think you, they're the biggest landlord in the country at this point because they, they merged are. with a uh, Homestar or whatever the other one was. But yeah, they're kind of a, an unwieldy beast. Yeah, yes, indeed. And then you have you know Avalon Equity Essex. You have all of these different massive corporate. Uh, landlords, they're the ones who are donating to the to the campaign. They're not mom and pop landlords. This isn't a you know grassroots you know fundraising uh, 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 you know program or whatever you know getting asking for money from you know smaller landlords at all. This is definitely a corporate driven one. They're willing to spend tens of millions of dollars to sink Prop Ten. I mean, you have to ask yourself, well, two things actually. On the one hand, well, I mean, if they're raising this much money. I mean, what does it say about how you know how uh, um, how important this is to their financial their bottom line on the one hand for these corporate landlords, but on the other it says you know the, the thing that I like to tell people all the time. I mean, who the hell are you going to believe? Are you going to believe the you know like the, these billionaire uh, folks? Like, there's one of the heads of one of these corporations. I forget right off the top of my head right now. It's worth thirteen billion dollars. He had Gwen Stefani performing at his birthday party where he had camels and all sorts of nonsense. Are you going to believe that guy, or are you going to believe like I don't know, even people like me who's broke as hell? Um, but are you going to believe the the ton of of people who are hurting in the state of California? These families who are being evicted and displaced, people who are leaving the state altogether. Like, let's be very, very clear about what Prop 10 is meant to address. It's meant to address a crisis of affordability because we all know that the rent is too damn high, as we keep on saying. Um, but that has an, an immediate knock-on effect. In places like LA, every 5% rent increase in the city ends up creating, you know, generalized, ends up having or, or creating 2,000 more homeless people who end up on, on our streets. We have a, a, a homelessness crisis that's directly connected to this problem. You have a displacement crisis generally. So we oftentimes describe that as gentrification. I would argue that it also is a, you know, a, bro- a little broader than that because the people who end up leaving from a particular community oftentimes are more likely than, than not these days is also leaving the whole state. They're not just leaving like, you know, like I grew up in Highland Park, which is massively gentrified. They're not just leaving you know, Highland Park. They're moving out either to smaller communities in, in the middle of, of California, pushing up costs there, and we're leaving the state altogether. I mean, that doesn't seem like a viable, you know, uh, um, thing. Uh, 
at all, you know. And and those are also people who generally do have the means to move, like people who right. might end up on the street or people who are, you know, their last dollar is going to rent. Families that have savings that have economic productivity are going to leave the state and sap that base even more. I mean, I, I mean, if I were to talk to a small businessman, I'd ask him, like, look, do you think it makes sense in your own community, for example, for people to be pushed out of their homes and then suddenly who's going to go buy your, your, your stuff? Who's going to buy your products at your, at your shop? Also, who's going to work for you? Do you think some of these, like, you know, you know, folks who are moving in who are developers or whatever, they're not going to be working at your your swanky coffee shop, right? So, I mean, those people are increasingly going to be pushed out to the margins of the city, having to drive two hours a day, uh, a day just to come into the city to be able to take these jobs. It's not good economically, you know, from on either side of the equation, either for the consumer or for the producer. Um and so, again, I would make this argument constantly to, to, you know, even smaller business folk or whatever. Like, look, this ain't I'm a I'm a, a tenant and this is not something that like helps me. But look, if I were even in your shoes, I wouldn't necessarily find this this these conditions uh, sustainable by any stretch of the imagination, you know. And so uh, let's sort of hop forward a little bit um, and let's say that we have passed Prop 10. We're repealed Costa Hawkins. I I'm expecting a lot of shady behavior from landlords. What are you expecting in terms of blowback? And we already kind of see this now um, with the Burlington fight, the exposition rent strike. We're seeing a lot of landlords already positioning themselves to sell out and get the top dollar for their place. And it seems like once they see the ticking clock, they're going to want to really go for the jugular on that. I mean, it seems to me like there is the danger, right, that you're going to have landlords who are going to be afraid of their units being brought under rent control. They might fear any potential vacancy control. Um, and they're going to probably try to evict their tenants through fair means or foul. It's going to create the the incentive, the conditions for mass evictions on a grander scale than we're already seeing. And mind you, we're in the middle of an eviction crisis. Something like 150 or 100 to 160,000 Angelinos are losing their home every year through legal means, i.e. they've actually received an eviction notice to the court. That number is probably two or three times higher if you if you count informal evictions. So you're talking about hundreds of thousands of people in LA, and only in LA, who are losing their homes. You're probably talking about, what, half a million or so who are losing their homes through the legal channels, through the courts, in California, and probably you know one to two million across the state, right? So we're in the middle of an eviction crisis. That, I imagine, will get worse unless you have cities and counties responding immediately to the, the uh, what's it called, to the passing of Proposition 10. And I think that's absolutely vital. Uh, what are you, you know, what are some possible solutions? I mean, it would, it, it stands to reason for me to, for, for the city council here in LA, for example, then to say, okay, look, we need to immediately revisit the RSO, the Rent Stabilization Ordinance here in LA. Mm-hmm. The same thing for San Francisco. I know that in some uh, municipalities there's already been discussion actually uh, about what would happen if Prop 10 were passed. I, I've seen some articles about that in Berkeley, for example. It seems to me that you know we were, we're going to have to push our elected officials here in, in Southern California and in Northern California and in the Central Valley and in San Diego to move quickly on this afterward. If the will of the electorate says that you know people want more rent control, then we better damn well get it. Yeah. You know? And and we're kind of seeing this with the uh, L.A. County Board of Supervisors who are talking about a rent freeze uh, that seemed to have gotten stopped by uh, Mark Ridley Thomas, whose family is just embroiled in scandal after scandal here. But we're beginning to see those movement, that movement towards that. Do you think people in elected office are pretty sympathetic to the cause, that they're movable? Like, what are you seeing as far as the political fight of getting the assembly and the, the county board and even city council to move? You know, let's be very clear. 
elected officials in the state of California have had the ability to, you know, to repeal Costa-Hawkins since 1995. It, it, the law itself barely squeaked through the, le- the legislature. It happened only because of a $50 million blitz by the landlord lobby. And if they haven't moved an inch in the last, what, 25 years or what have you, they haven't done it because they've been getting a lot of damn money uh, out of the process. And or they know that if they do, that they're going to have a wall of money coming out in opposition to, the, you know, uh, to them in their local seats. So what's the only way that they're going to be able to respond uh you know, to that. They're going to respond by saying, hey, you know what? It's not my fault. Costa Hawkins prevents tenants from being evicted, so we can't do anything about it. So our response, and this by this I mean the, the broad coalition, I mean the grassroots organizations who are behind this push to eliminate the Costa Hawkins Act, it's going to be our job to hold their feet to the fire. And a really intense fire at that, because we have to we have to be very clear the day after Prop 10 passes, the entire, you know, landlord lobby, you know, the California Apartment Association, the California Association of Realtors, they're going to move in lockstep the very next day and start plowing, you know, tens of millions of dollars, but to local battles, to L.A. County, to the city of Los Angeles, to San Francisco, etc., they're going to be applying, you know, severe pressure and saying, hey, this is you can't do this. You can't move on rent control, maybe even water down the current rent stabilization ordinance. Or if you do strengthen it, only tweak, you know, tweak it at the margins. It's going to be our job to basically hold those folks to to the fire. And I'm glad that you mentioned the, the, the action in L.A. County. But just to give a little bit of context for folks that don't know, there is uh, a report that the Tenant Protection Working Group which is a body empowered by the County Board of Supervisors to look at increased renter protections in unincorporated LA, which has over a million people living in it. They have basically no renter protections. The Tenant Protection Working Group has now formally uh, you know, released its report or, or finalized its recommendations calling for both the expansion of rent control in unincorporated LA, as well as uh, just cause provisions. In other words, uh, enumerating the reasons that a tenant can be evicted and basically saying if you're you know if you if you're not evicting someone for any of these very specific reasons and you can't just evict them uh, these are very powerful protections and every rent stabilization law in California that I can think of actually mar- it marries the two of these just cause protection prote- uh, uh, provision protections and uh, rent control they they they're important to each other you know and so we're ace as well as a ton of organizations here in in southern california are going to be you know constantly applying that pressure onto these elected officials to understand that we also need to expand uh, rent control to unincorporated la just one last thought on that though however i will say that the county did just pass a motion today uh extending a temporary uh rent uh, freeze of sorts to mobile home uh, uh, owners, which is actually extremely important because, it, you know, increasingly as we're seeing, for example, with street sweeps, you're also seeing a lot of a push, for example, um, for you know, basically uh, people no longer living in fixed abodes in quite the same way, obviously for, for the folks who are homeless, but for those who are in manufactured housing, in, on their own lots, they also are facing, you know, vertiginous increases in their rent. Those folks are now hopefully going to have, you know, more permanent protections as a result of the actions of the County Board of Supervisors. So to their credit, I'll say they did the right thing today. They should do the exact same thing. They should do the right thing for the folks who live in unincorporated.
Yeah, they seemed like they were pretty close to getting it. They had at least two yes votes, so hopefully we'll see some more more action on that because I think one of the most interesting things I heard coming out of this sort of statewide fight was the uh, attempt to repeal rent control in Mountain View where they were paying up to $40 a signature and they still couldn't get it on the ballot. It's even funnier than that because the grassroots campaign that got the rent control ordinance in Mountain View, I think had just been passed in 2016. Yeah, it's really young. Yeah, and then you got the the apartment association basically trying to overturn it immediately through a through a through a ballot initiative. And from what I understand, there were also some shenanigans there that uh, caught the eye of of regulators, uh, you know, electoral uh, regulators. So it, it didn't really do them much well, uh, much good again when they spent forty dollars a signature and still didn't get the damn thing onto the ballot. So. It, it's, yeah, and it's it's one of those funny things where when I've talked to people collecting signatures for, for uh, the Prop 10 or before it was Prop 10, the only people who were like, I don't care about the rent were people who are too young to, to rent apartments or to rent homes. Um, they were just like, I, I, I don't do that yet. I'm 14. It's like, well, thank you. But it, I think it shows the broad cross-section mm-hmm. of people who are affected. And even people who, like me, work white-collar jobs are really, really feeling the pressure. Um, so I was going to say, what do you think the next couple of months are going to look like? And what, what advice do you have? for folks that are like out in their community canvassing or even just like whipping votes amongst their friends? So I, I'd say start this conversation now. Uh, one of the, the big things that we need to do, and this is, th- I mean, hopefully a lot of your readers or your listeners, sorry, are, you know, in grassroots organizations. They're already organizing in some, re- in some way. Even if you're not, though, it's important that you educate people about Proposition 10. The biggest problem that we're going to have here is that obviously this is an off-year election, and so we need to be able to whip up people who normally don't vote, especially people who are working class, especially those who are com- in communities of color, and let them know that this is this will help them. This will this will arm or allow your your local community to arm you with the protections that you need to be able to stay in your home. It's absolutely vital. If, if I had to give one thing or one word of advice to people who don't know what to do for Prop 10, educate the people that you know, your friends, your family, your colleagues, um, you know, people in your organization, try to get them to endorse Proposition 10 and to start putting in some work. Start canvassing your neighborhood, just knocking on doors and letting people know like, look, this is, you know, Prop 10 is important. If you're a renter, it matters. If you're a homeowner, you probably know people who rent and you don't want them getting displaced because of it. You want your own son or daughter who's probably not going to buy a house right off, right after they leave your house. You want them to be able to have, you know, fair and affordable rents, right? So education is going to be absolutely vital. So will knocking on doors. So will just, you know, trying to have meetings and parties where you talk about this stuff. Um, you know, let people know. Prop 10 is for rent control. We want it for rent control. This is why we need it. Yeah. Uh, thank you very much. Is there uh, any last thoughts or any uh, last words of wisdom you want to leave us with? Uh, it's going to be a hard fight, uh, but we can make it. We can make it happen. We just need every single one of you to be able to participate in this fight for sure. Excellent. Thank you. And, and for those of you out there, you can check out the LA Tenants Union and uh, ACE Online. We'll have those links in the description. Renee, thank you very, very much for joining thank us. Thank you for inviting me. And uh, I will catch you all later. Take care. 